Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network of podcasts. I am Stephen Hausman, and I'm your host for today's interview, and I'm speaking with Finus Dunaway. Dr. Dunaway is a professor of history at Trent University and is the author of Defending the Arctic Refuge, a photographer, an indigenous nation, and a fight for environmental justice, which came out with the University of North Carolina Press in 2021, and this year, in 2022, won several different awards from various organizations, including the Hal Rothman Prize for Best Book in Environmental History of the American West from the Western History Association. Welcome to the New Books Network, Finest. Good to have you, and congratulations on all the uh, accolades. Thanks so much, Steve, and I'm uh, really grateful for the opportunity to talk about the book with you today. Why don't we start, as we always do on this show, by just hearing a little bit about yourself. Uh, What is your background? What's your story? And how did you become interested in history? Yeah, I think it took me a while to to find my way into history and and certainly to environmental history much longer. Uh, When I was in college, I thought about different majors. I kind of floated around between various subjects, all in the humanities and social sciences. But I eventually began to realize how history could help me understand the world around me and that it could help uh, illuminate issues that I cared about outside the classroom. And I think that's what ultimately led me to, to major in history. I graduated from high school in 1989, uh, which was the same year of the catastrophic Exxon Valdez oil spill in Alaska. Um, And I went to college at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill that fall and immediately got involved in campus activist groups, uh, especially concerning the environment. But over time, I became increasingly disenchanted and kind of more critical of the mainstream environmental movement. Um, particularly for the way it seemed to me that it was avoiding questions of social justice. And that led me to get involved in a very small way with labor issues that were going on on the campus at North Carolina and more broadly within the state. And around that same time, I began to learn about the field of labor history, which was like totally new to me, and actually decided that I wanted to go to graduate school uh, to study labor history. And it kind of represented this, you know, kind of convergence of these political interests that I was forming, um, as well as this uh, subject that I could study historically. So I'd never heard of environmental history before um, when I when I arrived in graduate school at Rutgers uh, for my first year of my PhD program. And then in a couple of the courses that I was taking, uh, some of the professors, you know, they were assigning works of environmental history, uh, including people like William Cronin and, and Carolyn Merchant and others. And I found this to be totally revelatory, like the idea of looking at nature as a category of analysis to, to see uh, the entanglements, uh, the changing relationships between humans and the environment over time. Um, And that led me to read more and more environmental history, um, which was sort of taking me back to some of, you know, what had inspired me early in in college outside of the classroom. And and for reasons I I can't quite understand, uh, because I have no artistic talent or ability whatsoever, I was also drawn to learning more about the history of visual culture, history of photography and film, and, and the way in which it seemed to me that images played an active role in the past not just reflecting the past, but like, you know, contributing to 
social movements and values and ideas about different issues. And for a while, these seemed like parallel interests, uh, like the environment and the, and the visual. Um, and then I had, I was really fortunate, and this is really kind of the story of my journey as a historian, I think is a lot of moments of randomness and serendipity that happened. Um, I had this kind of epiphany, I guess you could say, at the end of my first year at Rutgers. Uh, William Cronin came to Rutgers to give a lecture called The Trouble with Wilderness. This was the spring of 95. And as you know, any environmental historian who may be listening to this would know, later that year, that essay, The Trouble with Wilderness, was published and would go on to become probably the most influential and controversial essay written by an environmental historian. And as I was listening to Cronin speak, you know, I was, I was really kind of primed for this argument because I had become critical of the environmental movement as a college student. And he was offering this both historical and contemporary critique of the wilderness ideal for the way he said that it created a dualism between nature and human society for how it took attention away from issues of, of social justice and, and systemic environmental issues. Um, and so I was, you know, wholeheartedly, you know, convinced by this argument that he was making about the problems of the wilderness ideal. But his talk was largely based on literary examples, you know, Wordsworth, Thoreau, Muir, and other writers. But as he was talking, I kept wondering about images. I think he might have mentioned Thomas Cole very briefly, but I, I was thinking about photography in particular and other media, how they played a, a role in this history of shaping popular ideas about nature, wilderness, and the environment, you know, photographers like Ansel Adams and others. And it was in that moment um, that I began to wonder whether these like parallel interests that I'd been forming um, could be brought together, environmental history and the history of visual culture. And that's what led to my dissertation topic, uh, which became my first book called Natural Visions. Um, and so it was at that moment that, you know, things all really kind of converged for me. Um, and I began to see, you know, a path into history and a path into uh, understanding issues that I cared about um, and how they could be understand uh, historically. Um, and this moment of, of serendipity or randomness is certainly not the not the last that I would experience as a historian. And certainly that's the case with this new book, Defending the Arctic Refuge. This is something that I actually hear, uh, you know, I ask this question of, of all of my guests. And often I'll have historians who will say kind of a similar story that, that they're a college student or they're in grad school or, you know, they're in even, you know, younger than that. And they are they, they they look around the world as they see it and they say why is something like this right why do oil spills like this happen and it kind of launches them into a path of trying to answer that question of why and it sounds like you you kind of had a similar experience yeah absolutely so what brought you to this particular topic? You discussed a minute ago your um, kind of abiding and, and long interest in visual culture. And we'll talk about how visual this book is. For those that, that don't have a copy, it really is a, a, a beautiful book. It's a lot of really great, glossy, full-color images inside. But um, I'm curious, kind of in general, how you came to the topic of uh, Alaska and the Arctic. So how did you land on this topic specifically? And what is your relationship with this place, with Alaska? with the Arctic Wildlife Refuge. Yeah, and, and thanks for saying that about the uh, the design of, and the aesthetics of the book. I'm really grateful to the University of North Carolina Press for, for really making it look so beautiful, far, far, far exceeding my expectations. Um, and so, but the answer to your question, interestingly enough, it actually, it all started with a photograph. Um, 
and and again this is one of those random moments so this and it goes way back to actually 2005 um, we were visiting my wife's family lived in Seattle and we were visiting them and I, while we were there we were there for a while and I was doing a little bit of research at the University of Washington and uh, one day I was coming out of the library and uh, literally just like stopped dead in my tracks there was a, a photograph on the wall um, that just, you know, I found so enthralling and I had to figure out what was going on. It showed these, these really bright colors of orange and blue kind of alternating bands. And I looked more closely, you can see this was land and water. Um, and in the middle of the image and really the kind of the heart of the image, the real, the real, uh, kind of crucial theme of the, of the image were all these white dots, which turned out to be snow geese, thousands of snow geese migrating over what turned out to be the, the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. And this photograph was on a poster, um, promoting a, an exhibit that was going on on the campus of the University of Washington at the Natural History Museum there. And it had the name of the photographer. I'd never heard of him before, Shubankar Banerjee, uh, in the name of the exhibit. So, you know, went back to the computer, I Googled his name and, and discovered that uh, Banerjee uh, had done this exhibit uh, two years earlier in 2003 at the Smithsonian, and that it had created a huge firestorm of controversy. It was a, a set of photographs uh, based on his journeys up to the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. Um, and this was right at the moment when the George W. Bush administration was pushing really hard to open up this land for oil development. So his photographs became embroiled in this huge controversy over politics, over art, over censorship. The Smithsonian ended up moving the exhibit away from where it was supposed to be in a very prominent location uh, down to the basement and they expunged these detailed captions to, to really kind of uh, just have the barest of information and so I was like I need to learn a little bit more about this and so I ended up going over to this version of the exhibit that was now at the campus of the University of Washington and I, I was really struck by the artistry, by the, the images of, that he had of the Arctic Refuge, both the wildlife, including the, some aerial shots, as well as uh, some that really played with color in interesting ways, either, you know, often very stripped down, bichromatic uh, color uh, in, in the photographs, but also the way in which Banerjee was um, portraying human communities uh, that live near the refuge and depend upon wildlife that migrate through it, particularly the Gwich'in communities. And um, I was just, I kept returning to this exhibit uh, during our time in Seattle. Um, and it, it really challenged me because I had walked into this exhibit thinking, that it would just repeat the wilderness ideal, that it would show the Arctic refuge as this detached, faraway place that was, you know, separated from human society. They would kind of follow the same problems that Cronin identified in that, that essay that I had, you know, first encountered a decade before. But there was something else going on here, I realized, that it was not uh, following into that traditional wilderness mold, that it was showing this as a land that was connected to ecosystems far from Alaska, and that it was entangled with human communities as well. So I ended up um, writing an essay about that uh, exhibit, uh, and I never thought I would return to the Arctic again. Uh, I spent the next decade working on another book uh, called Seeing Green, which is uh, a book that focuses largely on iconic uh, images of environmental crisis and the environmental movement, looking at uh, dominant patterns of representation that 
bring uh, that create ideas of universal vulnerability and universal responsibility for the environmental crisis and often lead to individualistic solutions of green consumerism and the like. Um, so I spent the next decade looking at these mass media images. Uh, and when I finished that book, though, I decided I wanted to change the scale of analysis that I was de dealing with as a historian and looking at images. And so I wanted to decide to I really wanted to know more about the Arctic. Um, I'd written, you know, written this piece back in 2005 or six, and uh, began reading more about the history of the Arctic, and began to understand that this is a place that, you know, very few people in the lower 48 are ever going to go to. Um, it doesn't have the same visitation rates as a place like Yellowstone National Park, for example, and yet it still became this iconic land, and it became a place that was, you know, hugely controversial and contested uh, for decades. And so I wanted to understand how that happened, and I assumed uh, that images probably uh, played a role in that. And so, you know, I figured that somebody like Shubankar Banerjee could be a character in the book, and that I would look for other uh, examples of, of visual images and, and other kinds of cultural text that uh, introduced this land uh, to a broader public and that helped, uh, you know, bring public concern uh, over this place. And so that's what led me into the topic. But I had, uh, you know, no idea, like, the different turns it would take after that. But it was that moment of, of seeing his, his photograph and then that exhibit uh, that really sparked my interest and, and led to this long-term journey to understand the place. Well, let's talk about that place. Um, like like a lot of, of, of people who are around my age, I, I remember I kind of came of political age uh, remembering and hearing about debates around Anwar and, and the Arctic Wildlife Refuge. So it's a place that I'm familiar with, but like a lot of people, I've never been there myself. So I'm wondering if you can describe what this place is like. Where exactly is this wildlife refuge? And in kind of a, a broad sense, what is it like there? What's its ecology and who lives in this place in terms of both uh, people and animals and, and ecologies? Yeah, so it's it's like a lot of things with Alaska. I think it's kind of hard to to get your your sort of mind around the scale that we're talking about. But if you look at a map of Alaska, you will find the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge uh, in the northeast corner of the state. In fact, you can almost say it, it is the northeast corner of the state. Um, it takes up uh, in, in its current form uh, roughly 19 million acres, uh, which you know, to help make this a little more concrete, that's about the size of the state of South Carolina. Um, it's uh, roughly like eight, maybe 8.5 Yellowstone National Parks. So it's it's huge. It's an immense area. It's the largest wildlife refuge in the National Wildlife Refuge System. And it, it's made up of diverse ecological zones. It's one of the things that makes it so unique and important. Um, if you start in the north, you're uh, bordering the Beaufort Sea, the Arctic Ocean, uh, and so you have this tundra and coastal plain area. And then as you move further south, you get into uh, the, the foothills that lead then to the Brooks Range, um, which have massive glaciated peaks, huge mountains. And then further south, you get into the, the, the taiga and the, the boreal forest. Um, and so it has these, you know, it's a whole sort of continuum of these different ecological zones. The place that you hear the most about, though, is the coastal plain, uh, the area that, that, that's the furthest north. That's about 1.5 million acres. 
And so when you hear about the Arctic Refuge debate, this is what people are talking about. This is the the, the strip of land that is the most uh, contested, uh, you know, one of the most contested places in, in North America. And it became uh, so contested because uh, many believe that it may contain uh, deposits of, of oil and natural gas. Uh, and so fossil fuel interests have been pushing uh, to drill in there, you know, since uh, the 1970s and 80s. So it becomes this long, uh, recurring uh, high-profile environmental controversy, but it's uh, that land, the coastal plain, is also significant because it's considered by biologists uh, to be the biological heart of the refuge. Uh, it's a place where caribou come in huge numbers. Uh, currently, the porcupine caribou herd, as it's known, that relies on this this land, numbers 200,000 animals. One of the largest caribou herds in the world. Um, and they come to the Arctic coastal plain every year to give birth. This is their this is their calving grounds. It's a place where they can find uh, shelter uh, and they can find sustenance in relative safety uh, during this critical time of, of their life cycle. Uh, it's also a land that um, polar bears depend upon, uh, particularly important given uh, the worsening effects of climate change that have made uh, on land denning sites uh, more and more important for polar bears. Uh, also huge numbers of migrating birds. Uh, it's a, a roughly uh, a little over 200 species of birds that migrate they, there every year and they come from all across North America but also uh, continents, various continents around the world, some as far away as places like India. There's a species known as the yellow wagtail that migrates from India the buff-breasted sandpiper that migrates from Argentina. So it's, what's important to understand is it's, it's this, you know, when you look on the map, it's kind of a bounded space. There's, you know, you can see lines on the map that, that demarcate what this land is, but it also spills over well beyond those boundaries, beyond northeastern corner of Alaska. It's interconnected to ecosystems nearby as well as, as far away from that. And so if you look right to the east of the Arctic Refuge, you see two national parks in Canada, in the Yukon Territory of Canada, um, that are, you know, make up, make this into really kind of a transnational ecological space. And then, as I mentioned, with, with birds uh, migrating from far away, it is uh, a place that's interconnected, uh, you know, with, with uh, lands and ecosystems uh, very far from Alaska. And in terms of the human communities, um, there is uh, an Inupiat community, a largely Inupiat community known as Kaktovik, uh, which is within uh, the, the, the sort of northern edge of the Arctic Refuge. And then you have Gwich'in communities that are very close uh, to various parts of its borders, particularly in the southern part. Uh, Arctic Village, Alaska, for example, is uh, literally like right across, uh, I mean, it's just, it's just below the boundary for the Arctic Refuge. And, and people who live in Arctic Village uh, go into the Arctic Refuge uh, for uh, for hunting and other subsistence activities. It's a place where those uh, subsistence rights are maintained, unlike many other wilderness areas uh, in in North America. Um, but it's the, again, coming back to the coastal plain, this was left out, uh, uh, this was not given wilderness designation uh, when the Arctic Refuge was created. And so that uh, led, led it to be uh, left in legislative limbo uh, and thus set the stage for this ongoing debate over whether it should uh, be protected as a wildlife refuge or whether it should be turned into an industrialized oil field. 
And this book, like uh, like a lot of your work and like a lot of environmental history generally, is all about people finding different meanings in in places. Uh, so I'm wondering what has this particular place, this northeastern corner of Alaska, this this Arctic coastal region, what is it meant to different people, to the Gwich'in, to uh, 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 conservationists, to oil and other energy corporations? How have different people found meaning in this place? Yeah, that's a that's a wonderful question, and, and you're absolutely right. Like, it's a, it is a history of 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 dueling perspectives and uh, very you know uh, contested ideas about what this place means. Um, for uh, for conservationists, many of them uh, who helped create the refuge initially and and have been involved in campaigns over the decades, for many of them, this is seen as the last great wilderness. And that's a term that was coined in the 1950s before uh, this land was set aside. It's seen as, uh, you know, a vast area, as I've indicated, um, and also one um, that for them offers these ideas of escape uh, from modern society. It's sort of, it's seen as uh, the language that's often used here, very colonial language of untouched, of virgin land, uh, of, of a place that uh, allows you to go back in time uh, and to you know enter into this space that has not yet been corrupted by modernity. A, a view that um, allows uh, many of the wilderness advocates over time to ignore the human history of the area and it follows us you know the pattern of indigenous erasure uh, that you see uh, in in many other protected areas in North America and around the world um, that view is very different than what what the Gwich'in have uh, of this land I mentioned that that scientists call the coastal plain the biological heart of the refuge for the Gwich'in, uh, the coastal plain is the sacred place where life begins, and that's because of how critical it is to the uh, porcupine caribou herd. The Gwich'in and their creation story uh, talk about uh, before people existed, there were animals roaming the earth, and that the Gwich'in came from the caribou. And when the Gwich'in emerged, they made a pact with the caribou uh, to protect and sustain one another for all time. So this is uh, very much part of their their creation story, of their of their belief system. And so for them, the idea of drilling in this land where the caribou give birth every year, the sacred place where life begins, is a threat uh, to their food security. Uh, and also to their uh, sacred values, to their beliefs, to their culture, um, and to their relations of responsibility that they have maintained uh, since time immemorial with the caribou and with uh, larger Arctic ecosystems. For drilling proponents, um, the Arctic refuge is often described as uh, a wasteland. Um, they often will use uh, language to denigrate this place uh, to say that it has you know, no aesthetic value. Um, perhaps most famously, Gail Norton, who was uh, George W. Bush's Secretary of the Interior, referred to it as a flat white nothingness. Um, and so there you have, like, you know, the ultimate <clears throat> kind of disparagement of, uh, of a landscape uh, and of a place. And again, an erasure of, of, of you know, uh, thousands of years 
of human interaction uh, with this space. And so I'd say those are, you know, in very broad terms, uh, those are some of the perspectives and values uh, that people have brought to this place. And, you know, one of the things I do in the book is try to show how ideas that, you know, seem perhaps like completely opposed to one another uh, could, over time, uh, there could be these unlikely alliances formed, particularly within, with Wichin uh, and environmentalists who brought, uh, you know, very different understandings uh, and views uh, of this land. Uh, but even though they were maybe even though they were fighting for different reasons, they found common ground uh, over this idea of, of protecting this place, uh, of keeping it safe uh, from from oil development. Before we get into the, the arc of the book and the story that you tell here, um, I'm curious if you can talk a bit about about sources um, for, for this book. Can you explain a bit about what the what the research process was like for writing a book like this, especially for a book that's so visually driven? I, 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 it's, it's sort of a different kind of book than what a lot of people write. So I'm curious how you went about actually doing the work. Yeah, I mean, having written um, about images before, you might think that it would be similar to that, but but in fact, it was it turned out to be quite different because even though in this book, um, like I did in, in some other work, I, I do offer some, you know, close visual analysis and you know looking at particular images, but I realized that the, the story I wanted to tell was less about kind of what was going on inside the frame of the image and more what was going on outside. And so to really look at the work that the images were doing in the world. Um, and so to do that, uh, and this is not something I'd expected when I when I started the project, but I ended up relying heavily on, on oral history, on interviews with people. Um, and so the, the you know their quotes, their their stories, their knowledge um, are absolutely central to the the story that I tell in the book. And so I ended up doing interviews with um, Gwich'in leaders and others who've been involved uh, from northern communities in the fight to save this land, uh, with scientists, uh, some of whom were worked for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and be, had their science discredited and uh, suppressed and in some cases became whistleblowers because of pro-drilling administrations that, that disregarded their work. Uh, and with uh, environmental advocates on Capitol Hill, people who worked uh, for various environmental organizations. And I was fortunate to also be able to connect with grassroots activists across the U.S., people who um, became involved in this cause in various ways and were, you know, volunteers and you know, local Sierra Club chapters in other such groups. So that's a, a really critical part of, of, of the research I did. And, and I'm, I'm really grateful for everyone who was you know, willing to talk with me about this story. And for many of them, this was, you know, hugely important to their lives. Um, and so it was it was a wonderful uh, affirming experience, uh, really gratifying to be able to talk with them and learn from them uh, about this history, um, because they really helped me see this history in a completely different way, one that I never would have, you know, expected uh, to, to understand how this movement formed and how it developed over time. Um, and then there's all kinds of other, you know, more traditional historical sources in archives and libraries. Uh, but even then, I, I quickly realized that this the story that I was was eventually realized that I was trying to pursue was one that I couldn't just find in traditional archives. And so my idea of an archive began to change and it became to include things like, you know, storage rooms of 
of of environmental organizations or people's basements and garages, you know, of, of activists and scientists who had kept materials over the years. Um, and also local newspapers, you know, became really important uh, to tell the grassroots story of this movement. And we'll get into the, the slideshow that's really the kind of the central, um, you know, narrative thread in the book. But to understand the impact of this slideshow, I had to look at um, how it was being covered uh, in in especially smaller market newspapers um, and looking at letters to the editor to see how audience was, audience members were becoming engaged uh, in this struggle um, and to really take the, the history of the Arctic Refuge away from a kind of inside the Beltway narrative to see how this place was becoming meaningful to people, you know, far from Alaska in many cases, and but also far from Washington, D.C. So I think th those are some of the main main source materials. And then the slideshow um, that becomes, you know, the, really central to the narrative, that, that's, that's a huge part of, of the story as well. And, and finding that was absolutely critical to being able to, to write the book in the way that I did. Well, let's get into uh, the story of, of the book itself, uh, the story that you tell here. And you actually begin the book in uh, the early 21st century, and you begin it with a funeral. Can you explain this, this entry point into the narrative here? And tell us in particular about Lenny Combe. Who, who was Lenny, and, and why does this, uh, this funeral start off the story? Yeah, so um, when I decided in, in 2014 that I wanted to look more into the history of the Arctic Refuge, uh, you know, after having seen Shubankar Banerjee's photos nine years before, uh, I started going through some old materials I'd kept when I wrote, wrote that essay. And I, I just did a really quick bit of historical research to kind of give me a little context to write that piece. Um, and I found one folder that I had marked not important. Um, and I was looking through it and um, I found this little article in there. It was from the Sierra Magazine from the mid-90s, and it was called A Camera and a Cause. And it was about this guy named Lenny Combe who uh, had a slideshow, and he was taking the slideshow around the United States to try to build public support for protecting the Arctic Refuge. And I thought, this is, you know, this is a quirky story. And, and as someone who had been interested in, in visual culture, I was intrigued by the idea of, of thinking about uh, the grassroots circulation of images. So having written about largely about iconic images, what about the role of non-iconic images in history? And so, uh, you know, this just seemed really intriguing to me. And so I decided I should, I should contact this guy. And he was living in, in Western North Carolina. And so I started writing him a letter and um, put it aside for some reason for a little while and, and then came back to finish it up uh, in October of 2014. And right before I sent it, I Googled his name one more time, just wanted to make sure I had the right, you know, email address. And the first thing that comes up is his obituary. He had he had passed away on September 25th, uh, 2014. Um, and I, I thought that it would be, you know, important to try to contact people who were his friends, like to let them know that I, I didn't really know what my, my level of interest was, but it just seemed like this was a story that could be lost and, and that maybe there was something important here and to let them know that, hey, there's someone out there, you know, who has, has an interest in, 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 in understanding his role in this history. And so I ended up being able to find the name of someone who knew him and wrote him a message. And the very next day he called me back and left me like a really long voicemail. We ended up talking for an hour that day. And 
among other things, you know, he said to me at the very end of the call was, hey, we're having a memorial service this weekend, and I'm, I'm giving the eulogy for that. And, you know, it'd be really great if you come down for it. And I was like... I don't. I didn't know this guy. Like, it doesn't seem like it'd be appropriate for me to show up for his memorial service. He said, "No, no, no. This is not going to be a somber occasion. This will be, you know, a celebration of his life." And then he said at the very end, "Lenny would want you to be there." And I thought, well, maybe I should just look into this. This seems a little crazy, but I, you know, looked into it. And I was able to ended up even able to go down and um, to his memorial service in in North Carolina, and listen to you know various people speak and talk about his activism with the arctic refuge and also with uh, anti-mountaintop removal uh, in appalachia which is something he'd gotten really involved with in, uh, later in his life and one of the speakers there was was lucy beach who was a representative of the of the Gwich'in nation from alaska and she had traveled with lenny on slideshow tours um, and this is one of the distinctive parts of this slideshow uh, is that it included uh, indigenous representation and, and this was these were people who were there to tell their stories in their own words and she said um, if it wasn't for lenny there would be drilling in the arctic refuge right now and lots of people repeated this to me. There was like a potluck dinner afterwards, and they're like, oh yeah, Lenny, he was huge in this movement. If it wasn't for him, there'd be, you know, oil drills up there right now. And, you know, it's all sounded like the kind of exaggerated thing that someone would say at, at someone's funeral. But for some reason, you know, that that question just kind of gnawed at me when I, when I left North Carolina. And so I began researching uh, his story and the story of this slideshow, which was called The Last Great Wilderness. And, you know, began finding sources, you know, in archives and libraries and traditional uh, places. And every time I would come across a source about this slideshow, it just uh, uh, literally could feel my heart rate quicken. It was just so fascinating to me. Like, what, you know, what, what is this show? And like, how could it have had such an impact according to all these people? But I didn't think I was going to like write a book that would, you know, really make that the center of the story. I, I thought that this would be like a chapter, you know, a case study in, 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 a, in a longer, in a broader uh, history of the Arctic refuge fight. Um, but I kept turning up more materials that, that interested me and, uh, helped me to start see just how like absolutely vital this was in really surprising ways um, in terms of engaging grassroots audiences and in terms of building alliances, particularly between environmentalists and Gwich'in. And this is something that, that Linney did for like 20 years. He took this slideshow on the road. So, so from the late 80s, right when George H.W. Bush is becoming president all the way to the very end of the George W. Bush presidency. He's doing these slideshow tours. Um, and the, the, of course, one of the issues for me was how do I how do I find the slideshow? Like people in North Carolina said um, his friends were like, well, he's got a bunch of slides and carousels, but it all seemed kind of disorganized and and other people had told me that there was a soundtrack with it, that it wasn't just images, but, uh, you know, it was unclear where that might be. And the following year, I was in uh, Fairbanks, Alaska, in an, the office of an organization, the Northern Alaskan Environmental Center, and I found these binders. Um, 
labeled LGW. And I was like, huh, what does that mean? It means Last Great Wilderness. And these were, uh, you know, sheets uh, of slides from the Last Great Wilderness show. And I was like, well, why, why are they in Alaska if this guy lived in North Carolina? And it turned out that there had been a duplicate set. And I later found out actually there was a third set of the exact same slideshow uh, with the the soundtrack and everything else that had toured uh, for many years, sponsored by various organizations. Um, and But again, in, in the Northern Alaska Environmental Center, I was speaking with the executive director who was you know very kind and welcoming and let me you know rummage their storage room for sources. And she said, well, there's a volunteer who we think is going to try to digitize these slides, but she knew nothing about a soundtrack or anything else. But in the final sheet of the slides, there was a list of credits in one of the slides. And I saw the name of someone, uh, Richard Dale, who was listed as having done the soundtrack. And I was eventually able to track him down. He he still lived in Sonoma, California, which is actually where this group had, had originated in the, in the late 80s that created the slideshow. And I got in touch with him and it turned out he had this third set of the slides. And not only that, he had digitized the whole show, including the soundtrack and the narration. Um, and so once I was able to meet with him and then I you know, got this digital copy of the slideshow and I, you know, I had my expectations were frankly pretty low as to like what what this you know would be like. And um, I was like completely surprised by uh, the level of thought that they put into it and the way that they layered uh, different issues. And uh, between, you know, coming, once I finally got the slideshow um, and then began to talk to more and more people, including Gui Chen, who went on these slideshow tours, a local activist who would host Lenny and, and others who came through their communities giving the tours, um, and also talking with people in D.C. who were involved in, in organizing the tours and connecting them you know, sort of coordinating them in, in relation to uh, efforts to lobby, you know, members of Congress, I began to see this sort of larger story unfolding about how this little modest slideshow put together by a group of amateur activists in Sonoma, California in the 1980s could actually have had uh, the surprising long-term impact on this larger movement. So it well, all began, it all began going to, you know, going to Lenny's, uh, memorial service and then being left with this sense of you know is is this possible is 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 did history did all these people you know contribute to this struggle in in ways that um i could not have foreseen and and where where does history happen uh does it happen in these you know rotary club meetings and church basements uh and is is that where you know you can really see um a level of public engagement and agency and impact uh, upon what's going on, you know, back on Capitol Hill. And that's really what so much of this story is is all about is, um, you know, I, I hesitate to use this word, but but kind of average people, right? People that you often don't think about as like uh, inhabiting the, the halls of power who are in fact making great changes, right? And are, 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 are making history happen on the ground. And I, I love that that story that you start the book off with, with attending Lenny's funeral. It's really fantastic. Before... Yeah, thank you. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to I want to come back to Lenny in a moment, but I think we have to take a step back and do a, just a little bit more context setting here. I want to go back to the mid twentieth century, and I'm curious, where did the idea to offer federal protection for this place? Where does it come from? Where does it emerge from? Who was involved in this sort of initial protection process? Who was excluded from that particular process in the middle decades of the twentieth century? And how did that particular political story play out? Yeah, so it, it the the real story I, I would say in terms of federal protection it begins in the fifties, and um, I, I alluded to this phrase before the last great wilderness. But in in 1953, uh, George Collins and Lyle Sumner, who had both worked for the National Park Service, um, wrote an article for the Sierra Club Bulletin called uh, in which they they termed the northeast part of Alaska the last great wilderness. And they called for uh, federal protection of this land. And they used uh, frontier motifs here. They talk about this is the, the type of you know pioneer frontier that has vanished from the lower 48. They refer to um, the caribou herds uh, and how um, you know massive they are, how spectacular they are, how much they remind them of, of what they think it must have been like to see buffalo herds on the Great Plains in the 19th century. Um, and so they're using all these these motifs uh, again coming out of like the frontier myth, uh, very much following a pattern of, of colonial uh, visions of the land. Um, ignoring um, indigenous populations and indigenous history and culture. Um, they also call for this place, in their view, it should be cross-border. Um, they, they actually talk about the land to the east in the Yukon, um, and they think that this should be you know, viewed as this kind of interconnected, uh, protected space. Um, so that begins, I'd say, the, the mainstream kind of conservation movement interest uh, in protecting Northeast Alaska. Um, and that's furthered a few years later, 1956, when Olus Murray, Marty Murray, and a few others head off on the, the Shinjak River Expedition, where they're uh, doing a sort of a, a scientific catalog of what's there. But even more importantly, uh, they bring cameras with them, uh, both uh, still and, and, and moving uh, picture cameras so that they can film and take photographs that they can share with the wider public. And then there's this sense in their correspondence uh, of, of Olus Murray and others that if they don't uh, take a picture of it, then it, it, it do, it's not going to have any political impact. And so the way to reach uh, a larger public far from Alaska is to let them know, you know, through images uh, what this place is like. So there's this campaign that takes place through the 50s. It includes slideshows uh, and documentary films, very much what you see in the later period that I that I focus on. Uh, and it culminates in 1960 with um, Eisen, President Eisenhower setting aside uh, through a public land order what was then called the Arctic National Wildlife Range um, as an area to protect the wilderness and, and wildlife values uh, of, of northeastern uh, Alaska. Um, and this is done without any consultation with indigenous communities, either Gwich'in or Inupiat. They're, they go unmentioned uh, in this public land order. Um, 20 years later, uh, it, I'm sorry, at that point, it's about 9 million uh, acres. Uh, and then 20 years later, as part of the Alaska uh, National Interest Lands Conservation Act, one of the biggest public lands act in US history, uh, which is signed by Jimmy Carter, 
that um, among many provisions for setting aside forests and parks and wildlife refuges in the state of Alaska, that law uh, then expands what was originally called the Arctic National Wildlife Range, changes the name to refuge, it doubles the size, um, it declares much of it a wilderness area, meaning that there can be no uh, industrial uh, incursions into the land, but leaves the coastal plain, as I said before, you know, in this legislative limbo, saying that uh, a future Congress would have the power to decide what would happen with this land. And that's because uh, in the 1970s, the Trans-Alaska Pipeline is built uh, following the, the discovery of oil in Prudhoe Bay in 1968, and oil is becoming, you know, absolutely central to the model of economic development the state of Alaska is pursuing. Um, and they know that at some point in the future, uh, that, um, that, that oil from Prudhoe Bay is going to decline uh, and they're going to need to find other sources of oil to pump into the pipeline. And, and they believe that they can find it uh, in the coastal plain of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. So that sets the stage for this huge controversy and you know ongoing fight uh, for many decades. Um, Section 1002 of ANILCA uh, is what uh, leaves uh, the coastal plain in legislative limbo. And when does Lenny Cohn become involved in this story? Uh, what, what's his relationship to this place? How does he first become involved in activism to protect the Arctic refuge? And sort of in a general sense, how did he see himself within this larger uh, 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 movement? Yeah, so he was, uh, you know, one of these unlikely activists who I, who I, who was the main, maybe the, you know, the main character in the book, but he's not the only one. And he, uh, he, he was born in Seattle in 1939 and uh, became uh, really interested in in jazz music and in drumming and went to the Berkeley College of Music in Boston and then worked for uh, as a professional drummer for 15 years in the Bay Area, uh, opening for the the likes of. Um, Jefferson Airplane and CCR and the Grateful Dead and all, all the kind of Bay Area icons of the 60s. Um, and then he moves to Sonoma, California uh, in 1977. He says uh, he does that because he's decided that he's the, uh, quote, probably the 238th best drummer in the world, uh, which I just love that uh, quantitative precision that he has there. Um, and uh, ends up becoming working for at a drugstore. He was the guy that would develop your film when you dropped off your your camera film, and that from that develops an interest in photography, uh, and um, in, and in photojournalism. And so in 1987, uh, when he's in his late 40s, he heads up to Alaska, uh, right at the moment when you know it's a really critical year in, in Arctic refuge history. The Reagan administration is really pushing to drill there. They release a big report calling for this land to be opened up. And this guy, Lenny Combe, heads up to Alaska to take pictures for Audubon magazine, which was going to like be running a special issue about, about the refuge. Um, and he, he goes up and sees the refuge. He sees Prudhoe Bay and the oil fields. And then he spends time in Gwich'in communities, uh, both in Alaska and across the border in Canada. And that's what completely changes his life and, and changes his understanding of the issue. He'd come there thinking it was a, a fight of wilderness versus oil. But from them, he began to understand that this was also a fight uh, for cultural survival. It was a fight for, for indigenous rights, for environmental justice. And, you know, he has this, he describes it as his epiphany. Uh, where he 
feels this sense of responsibility that he wants to become involved and that he you know wants to do whatever he can to make sure that that oil development doesn't happen there and so comes back to california abandons what he you know calls his journalistic objectivity and just throws himself into activism forming a, a small grassroots group in sonoma uh that then develops this last great wilderness slideshow can you explain, or maybe explain is the wrong word, can you describe that slideshow a little bit? And occasionally on this podcast, I'll, I'll, I'll cover a book, I'll, I'll interview an author of a book that is very much about kind of uh, visual culture like this. And a podcast is maybe not the, uh, the, the best medium for, for something like that. But as best as you can, can you describe what this presentation is all about? And then maybe in a larger sense, who did Combe show it to uh, on these presentation tours? Who attended these tours with? him and what kind of impact did it have on those those people who saw it it sounds like a very powerful presentation yeah absolutely and, and as i said it completely um exceeded my, my expectations about what it would be um so this little group in sonoma they call themselves the sonoma coalition for the arctic refuge and they wanted to make a documentary film um, they had uh, some really interesting like creative uh folks who who gathered in this little organization but they never got enough money you know to to for a budget for for a documentary film so they came up with this idea to do a slideshow and one of the members of the group uh, richard dale who did the soundtrack for it uh, he had been at a present he helped a friend at a winery uh put together a presentation using what seemed like this really you know cutting edge technology called a fade dissolve unit um, and this is a device where you could take two slide projectors um, and the fade dissolve unit would be programmed through the soundtrack so that like one slide fades in as the one from the next one is is fading out and that continues on so it gives it this feeling of, of motion uh, of movement more like a documentary film i guess than, than a traditional slideshow and the soundtrack had music done by richard dale who had been in like folk rock groups before um, and a narration um, as well as interview clips uh, with Gwich'in, uh, especially from, from Old Crow Yukon and from uh, the Gwich'in Gathering in 1988, which was this major event that led to increased Gwich'in advocacy around the Arctic Refuge. So the slideshow is about 30 minutes. It has about 250 slides. Uh, many of the slides uh, were taken by Linny from his time in Gwich'in communities. He ended up spending months uh, there in, in various communities on both sides of the border. They also gathered images from others who had been to the Arctic Refuge, from scientists, from uh, conservation advocates and others. And it's um, a slideshow that, you know, I think it has like surprising like relevance and resonance today, even though it was done in the late 80s, they, they didn't give um, they didn't sort of bound it by chronology. Um, so it's not, uh, th there are a few moments where they allude to things that are going on at that moment uh, in time in the 1980s. But for the most part, it has this kind of, you know, both very kind of timeless and very timely quality at the same time. Um, and so it begins uh, with very, uh, you know, kind of simple sort of evocations of nature, different wildlife in the refuge. It doesn't so much focus on what you might expect in terms of like sublime imagery. There are, you know, some photos of the Brooks Range, but they're most much more interested in uh, the ecology of the area. So looking at, you know, sort of smaller scale nature images to give you a sense of the the profusion of life that's there they discuss oil drilling 
uh, elsewhere in Alaska, especially Prudhoe Bay, with some you know incredible shots of what that has done to those areas. Um, and then around the 18-minute mark, you suddenly uh, get this dramatic shift uh, where up until this point, it's all about wilderness and oil and wildlife. And you're planted in Gwich'in communities uh, with Lenny's slides and with interviews he did with people there, which really portrays the Arctic as indigenous space, as, indig as Gwich'in homeland, um, not simply as a place for, you know, conservation advocates and uh, uh, big oil to fight over, but also a place that's there, that there is their homeland. The slideshow also alludes to climate change, they would have called it global warming then, and to fossil fuel dependency. And this is a year before Bill McKibben's book, uh, End of Nature, comes out, the first popular book about global warming. It's right around the time when James Hansen is giving famous testimony in Congress. So what really struck me about all this is that that they, despite the title, The Last Great Wilderness, they were really uh, transcending a lot of the limits of the wilderness ideal by connecting this place in northeastern Alaska to other ecological spaces, to human communities, and to indigenous rights, and to large-scale systemic questions of fossil fuel dependency and global warming. And so um, I think it's a show that if people watch today, you know, it has a, obviously a very sort of simple, low-budget, homespun quality, which I think, you know, adds to its authenticity and sincerity. Uh, but also, I think people would be surprised uh, to see this group of amateur activists weaving these ideas together uh, in the way that they did. And who ended up seeing this slideshow? I mean, the refuge is going to survive, uh, you know, several presidential administrations and several renewed and then renewed again efforts to drill in this place. And at Lenny's funeral, as you said, you have all these people saying that without Lenny's work, that this, this the refuge would not be what it is today. So what is the impact of this slideshow? And how does it help the refuge to, in fact, survive all of these attempts at, at opening it up to oil drilling? Yeah, so it was all, you know, done in a very strategic fashion, like, and this is where the, the kind of the inside the Beltway story is, is, is you know, crucial, um, in that Lenny would be coordinating his efforts with uh, environmental groups in D.C., primarily to focus on congressional targets, you know, people who seem like they were, were on the fence, that maybe you could persuade them to vote against oil development, um, as well as building up others, you know, kind of keeping others on side who'd been who'd been supportive of, of prote refuge protection before. Um, but the slideshow would go, um, you know, sort of, again, often into sort of uh, particularly, you know, sort of targeted areas. Um, and it would be shown in libraries and church basements and universities lecture halls and Sierra Club meetings and Rotary Club meetings and retirement homes, where, where really wherever anyone would, would listen. Uh, I think Lenny said that his audiences range anywhere from two to, to, to 2,400, but I imagine often it was more within the range of, you know, 50 or 100 people gathered together. And he, he worked closely with uh, First Nations governments in Canada, tribal governments in Alaska, and other Indigenous-led organizations like the Gwich'in Steering Committee to uh, as much as possible to have Gwich'in representatives with him. And so for, for these, and one of the points that was really emphasized by some of the Gwich'in I interviewed was how much the slideshow tours changed their lives. Um, it, in many cases, it uh, gave them a path into leadership back home in their own uh, communities and nations. Um, and it helped them 
um, you know, sort of form uh, a greater sense of, of alliance uh, with environmentalists, and that Linney became this kind of bridge uh, between the Greenies uh, and the Gwich'in, uh, because he was someone who um, was not uh, working with them in a kind of, you know, more instrumental or extractive fashion. He was someone who had spent months and months on their lands, in their communities, um, and he was someone who had built this level of trust, uh, which was not maybe as easy for someone, you know, who had not been there, had not spent time there, who may have been viewed with, with suspicion uh, by the community. And I think uh, many of the people I interviewed uh, really emphasized him and, and a few others as being these kind of key uh, linchpins between uh, these different groups. Um, in terms of audience, um, I was able to to actually talk to some people who went to these shows and in you know their level of of impact and involvement range you know in some cases you have people who you know write a letter uh to their member of congress or to the the editor of the newspaper uh they form a local uh group uh, that, that continues to be engaged and involved in the issue um they host Lenny, they help promote the shows locally. But in some cases, there are individuals I talked to whose whole lives were changed by this, like, quite, you know, and they could actually draw a straight line from, you know, going to see the show, being so uh, affected by the show itself, by Lenny's story, and often even more by, by the Gwich'in representatives who were there uh, to, uh, you know, in some cases, drop everything they're doing uh, to get involved in this cause and, and, and sort of stay involved uh, for, for years and, and decades to come. So it's, uh, you know, I was struck just by how many people had these kinds of stories um, and how much it really had this uh, impact, especially at the grassroots level um, on, on audience members. And you end this this story um, on kind of an ellipsis, as as we we're just saying a second ago. The refuge is going to survive the Bush and the Obama years, and all of these frequent attempts to try to drill within its uh, its borders, within its boundaries. Um, and you end the book with the Trump administration poised to change course, to allow drilling along the uh, entirety of the coastal plain. So. How does this happen? What changes in the early 21st century from the first uh, decade of the 21st century to the second decade of the 21st century? What what happens here? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And that's that is like another one of those strands that sort of appears throughout the book in different ways. It's sort of what's what are the political dynamics in, in Washington, D.C.? And um, I, I think the key story there uh, to explain what allowed uh, the Trump administration to get Arctic refuge drilling approved in 2017 is the radicalization of the Republican Party. Um, because, you know, I, I do profile a few individual members of Congress who were like fence sitters who like, you know, ended up voting for refuge protection. There's a one really kind of dramatic story of, of um, Wayne Gilchrist, who is a Republican from the Eastern shore of Maryland, who um, is actually talks with Linny and, and Glenna Frost, now Glenna Tetlici, uh, Vuntuk Gwich'in from Canada. And she has, uh, you know, an incredible story to tell him. Um, and this uh, actually leads him to vote against Arctic drilling and, and to maintain that position for the rest of his career. Uh, Wayne Gilchrist is is essentially, you know, he's primary later on. Um, and this is right around the time of the rise of the Tea Party. 
uh, where climate change denialism becomes the norm within the Republican Party. And in essence, the moderate Republican becomes an endangered species. And, and I do discuss various moderate Republicans like Wayne Gilchrist and others who uh, play a real you know, pivotal role in some of these key votes in um, when it seemed as if Arctic refuge drilling was was very likely to get approved, where it actually for many seemed inevitable that this was going to happen, um, and that there were a number of, of moderate Republicans who uh, would go against the Republican leadership on this issue, um, those people don't, you know, few of those people um, exist anymore. Um, and so you have the, the radicalization of the Republican Party, the, the pattern of denying uh, science, climate change denialism. Um, and so it's all of those forces come together uh, with the, the rise of Trump uh, and what's ultimately the approval, uh, first time ever that both Congress and the president approve Arctic refuge drilling. Uh, Congress had actually approved it during the Clinton years, but Bill Clinton vetoed it. Um, and that happens in 2017 in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, uh, which promises $1.5 trillion in tax cuts, primarily to the wealthy and corporations. And the Arctic drilling provision was supposed to bring in $1 billion in revenue to offset that $1.5 trillion in tax cuts. So you can see a few zeros missing there, whether whether you know, whether you're a mathematician or not. Uh, but even that $1 billion figure was hugely inflated. Um, and, and drilling proponents knew that. And so when the lease sale actually happened, uh, it brought in, I think the sum total was, uh, I think it was 12, no, I think it was $6 million. Uh, yeah, $12 an acre in federal revenues. Uh, so about $6 million came in. So we're, we're talking about the most paltry sum. It has nothing to do with uh, federal budgetary concerns. It has everything to do with the state of Alaska still being wedded uh, to a model of economic development in which fossil fuels, you know, are paramount. So where do things stand today? Um, what is the state of the refuge here? Uh, we're talking in the, the waning weeks of 2022. Where do things stand here at the basically the start of, of 2023? And maybe a, a, a better question connecting to this book is how strong is the activist movement today that, that Lenny uh, was, was so involved in? So what, what does the protection of, the, of this place look like today? Yeah, so as I mentioned, the lease sale happens, uh, so it's approved in 2017. The lease sale actually happens on January 6, uh, 2021, a date that will be, you know, uh, people will, will quickly recognize. I was tuning in to a live stream of the lease sale because this is, you know, first time this has ever happened on, on January 6, 2021, and then started seeing these reports on social media of you know strange disturbing things happening simultaneously at the u.s capitol so at the i mean at the exact same moment that the capital insurrection is taking place the lease sale is occurring and i think that those two events need to be thought about together because i think the same pattern of election denialism uh, that you saw that helped spark that insurrection on January 6th is related to the, lar the pattern of, of climate change denialism, science denialism, and some of the, the scheming behind the scenes that led to Arctic drilling being approved in the first place. This, the lease sale, however, was a complete flop. Um, no major oil companies showed up. If this had happened, like, say, during the W years, uh, you can 
definitely uh, believe that all the big players would have been there and they would have been you know eager to bid on uh, leases for the Arctic refuge for this lease sale uh, two small oil, small oil companies that you've never heard of before put in bids uh, as well as a state-owned corporation uh, owned by the state of Alaska uh, actually bought up most of the bids uh, the two oil companies have since walked away uh, have, have since given up their their leases and so the only leaseholder left is the state of Alaska which doesn't have this company doesn't have the the technology the infrastructure to actually do oil development they're holding on to leases out of the hope that maybe they'll interest uh, oil companies in the future um, the movement to um, to stop this from happening is still very strong and vibrant. It's moved into different realms, though. Um, the story that I tell in the book is, is largely one focused on the legislative realm and to a certain extent the executive branch, but really looking at you know pieces of legislation, whether or not Arctic drilling uh, would be approved or not. That's a, still an ongoing fight. There was an effort to get um, an end to the drilling program and the Build Back Better Act uh, this year, but of course, uh, that plan ended up uh, not uh, coming to fruition and it was not included in the in the Inflation Reduction Act. So in, so while the legislative realm is still going to be important in the future, the other areas that have become increasingly important uh, include courts. There's various lawsuits taking place, but perhaps even more than that, uh, the corporate realm and the banking realm and the insurance realm, all where uh, particularly the Gwich'in Steering Committee, uh, along with their environmental allies, are targeting uh, banks and corporations and insurance companies not to, uh, you know, invest in or insure uh, drilling in the Arctic. And that has had huge uh, success uh, in terms of major banks in the U.S. and Canada saying they will not finance Arctic drilling. Um, and so I think that, that those arenas will, will continue to be important in the future. And I think the movement has changed um, really in the last few years, as far as I, I see it, to being increasingly indigenous-led, uh, more so the, the Gwich'in, as I said, have been hugely important, and, and I argue in the book, play um, uh, and it may, really make the key difference in expanding what I call in the book the coalition of conscience, really being able to appeal beyond environmentalists to religious groups and others. And I think without Gwich'in involvement all along, I think the, the Arctic Refuge would have been drilled by now. Uh, but I think that they've become even more important in recent years in leading um, the charge, leading the fight into, the, into these other realms. And then as we begin to wrap up, um, I always like to ask my guests to take the perspective of a reader of their book and kind of think about if someone re reads this book here in 2022 and they think back on it in a year or in five years or, or some date down the line, what do you hope they remember? What do you hope they take away from this book, thinking back on it somewhere in the future? Yeah, that's hard. That's hard to to know. Like, what's what what how a reader will respond. I mean, obviously, I hope they enjoy the story itself. But I think beyond that, maybe they take away a sense of surprise, um, surprise about where about where history happens, um, a, a surprise about the power of of non iconic images, how they how they act in the world, and how in this case, I think they help build a social movement. Um, that they think about. A sense of surprise about people's life stories, about accidental activists who who get involved in these campaigns, uh, about the power of unlikely alliances uh, to uh, 
to, to be able to, to to take on deep-pocketed adversaries like the oil industry and powerful politicians. And I, I think maybe that's all kind of clustered around the idea of contingency, to think about the contingencies of history um, and to think about how, um, you know, the Arctic Refuge would have likely been drilled by now uh, had it not been uh, for these various uh, contributions of, of unlikely activists and from the sincere listening and learning that we see in the example of Lenny Combe. And so maybe that sort of sense of surprise and contingency, um, not to sound too grandiose, but maybe it would also lead to some, you know, feeling of uh, maybe feeling a little inspired or, or empowered uh, about this about this story and about the impact of this little slideshow and about all these people who came together, countless uh, people across the continent uh, whose names would often be lost to history, nevertheless played a huge role in making history. Yeah, I mean, that that, that would, will certainly be one of my takeaways. You and I both teach environmental history, and I would guess that you sometimes struggle with this as well, you know, that it's very easy to fall into a kind of declensionist narrative, right? To leave our students, for instance, feeling kind of glum about the state of, of, of the environment and about sort of the arc of environmental history. And what this book provides is kind of an antidote to that, right? Not because things are perfect. I mean, you do end with the opening up of, of this uh, place for drilling in 2017. But nonetheless, this is a story about people, about sort of everyday people that are, in fact, gaining power and are making changes through their activism. So uh, I think that, that what you just described is, is a fantastic takeaway. And I really liked the sort of, you know, if not quite hopeful bent of this book, that this is a, it's, it's a story that, that I think a lot of people can see themselves in as well. Yeah, thank, thank you so much for saying that. That, that means a lot to, to hear that. And, and maybe since you mentioned teaching, it'd be a good time to mention um, the uh, the website companion to the book, um, which includes uh, the last Great Wilderness slideshow so that people can have a chance to actually to see this now, um, as well as I put on the, on the site a timeline and uh, groups of sources around various themes that relate to the book. And I, and I hope that these will be materials that will be of interest and use to people, you know, especially in the classroom setting. And I'll be sure to include a link to those materials in the show notes as well. Um, my last question is, you know, I know historians that we all have several projects that we're working on at the same time. So I'm always interested in getting a preview of what my guests are working on next. So Finus, what have you been working on in, in the meantime? Now, this book has been out for a little over a year now. Yeah, usually when I finish a project, I'm I'm kind of keen to just like launch into something new, and I, I haven't felt that way with this one. I think it's because it 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 I I enjoyed and, and cared about this project more than anything else I've I've ever done as a as a researcher, and so it's been a little bit hard to let it go. Um, but I have uh, over the last uh, last winter, I, I worked um, with Shubankar Banerjee, uh, who's uh, you know the the person whose photograph led me into this topic in the first place. He and I worked together on an art exhibit, actually, where we took photographs of his from the American West, including Albuquerque, where he lives now, uh, the transnational Arctic, Alaska, Yukon, and Siberia, and India, which is where he's from. Uh, and we took these photos and turned them into postcards with uh, fairly lengthy descriptive text on the back uh, around the theme of beyond fortress conservation. So looking at issues of biodiversity and justice uh, in these various places. Uh, and that was exhibited um, over the past year in Venice, Italy uh, from, from April to November. Um, and we've taken that exhibit now and, and 
taken ideas from it and images and, and turned it into an article uh, which will be coming out in uh, environmental history uh, in, in 2023. Um, and beyond that, we might continue working more on this on this project uh, on images and biodiversity. Um, I've been thinking very seriously about returning to a topic that's in a uh, the book Seeing Green, there was a chapter there about the crying Indian, the story of Iron Eyes Cody, uh, and the very famous, infamous public service announcement for the anti-litter group Keep America Beautiful that came out in 1971. And um, I've been looking more and more into his story uh, and into the impact and kind of legacy uh, of that campaign for uh, greenwashing campaigns that would follow. So I've been uh, I'm not 100% on this, but but I'm but I've been giving serious thought about about looking more uh, into into that story. Dr. Finus Dunaway is the author of the award-winning new book, Defending the Arctic Refuge, A Photographer, an Indigenous Nation, and a Fight for Environmental Justice, which came out last year with the University of North Carolina Press. Thank you so much for speaking with me today, Finus. Thanks so much, Steve. I really enjoyed it.